Hi, it's Michael here. Welcome to the second episode of Product Confidential. In this episode, Evie and I speak to a fantastic guest, freelance discovery consultant and all-round dude, Nico Noll. In the chat, you can hear Nico share some fascinating insights into the benefits of trying to speak to a user a week, how and why he became a freelancer in this niche, the practicalities of running your own research, as well as a chat about why it's worth building your personal brand on LinkedIn, even if that feels uncomfortable. Before the show starts, I'd like to quickly ask you, if you get any value from this episode, please do subscribe or leave a review. It really helps me and Evie out. Other than that, we hope that you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Product Confidential. Today we are joined with Nico, who is a product discovery coach based in Germany. So Nico is going to talk to us today all about different areas of product discovery, his expertise in that space, and how he works with different organizations to help him implement best product discovery practices. So I won't talk too much. I'll let Nico do the talking. Um, but yeah, Nico, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you do do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me um on this like evening conversation i'll try to keep my mental focus uh for the for the rest of the night um i i'm uh, a software engineer ex-psychology student turned product manager in a more corporate or uh, scale-up sized environment and for the last year and a half i've gone independent and and have really looked for a thing I can put on my flag and that uh, flag now says product discovery. I've yesterday been asked why and, and the assumption was that I did a ton of product discovery before jumping into this and I would say the exact opposite was the case. It was this is the area of expertise that I feel the least confident in so I'm just going to double down on it. Um, which doesn't mean I didn't do product discovery. It doesn't mean that I didn't learn, but I had the feeling I had a lot of potential there and so do most product teams. And so it's kind of counterintuitive, but I just jumped into that. And by now I would say I do have um, significantly more experience in it than, than many people do just because I jump around so much and I try to help teams and uh, and coaching is, is, is one part of it. Uh, but so far it has also been just a lot of uh, hands-on work, um, implementing discovery processes, Doing, doing more just regular PM stuff as well um, and, and kind of whatever is needed. And obviously I'm looking to specialize more and more, but it's a, it's a journey and I'm only a year and a half in. So um, that's, that's where I'm at right now. No, I love that authenticity. I'm like, <laughs> that's where most people sit on these kind of podcasts and they're like, no, I'm a product discovery expert. This is why mm -hmm. you should work with me. And actually having someone turn around and say, no, like I have different reasons why I chose that. And I picked an area, not necessarily that was a weakness, but an area that I wanted to grow more confident in. And I still went for it anyway, I think is a really great thing to be able to share. Um, so, yeah, I've got a few questions, but I'll start with that one. How did you find that transition if you didn't think you were an expert? And how did you grow your confidence and put yourself out there? Yeah, that is a question I think a lot about because I get asked by now quite quite a lot of times of, you know, how would I make the transition or how could you ever uh, do that? Uh, or I get uh, sentiment like, well, it doesn't look like you have a decade of experience or um, it doesn't look like product management is really a role where you could freelance, coach, interim, whatever you want to do in that sphere. Um, and I actually didn't know that that even existed like half a year before I jumped into it. 
So how did I make that leap? It's, I would say it's mostly that I always wanted to bet more on myself. Um, and I realized, and this is maybe a bit of a controversial statement, that most product managers don't know what they're doing. And so if I'm not really sure what I'm doing, I'm just as good as the other people. Um, in the sense of like, it's a very complicated job. It's very nuanced. And I think in at least some companies and environments, it it attracts people who have a greater ability to BS than myself. And I didn't see that in the beginning. I just thought it was competence. And then at some point I realized, ah, it might actually not all be competence. And then I felt more comfortable about, <laughs> about myself. So the way I got rid of imposter syndrome was realizing that the other people are also not that knowledgeable sometimes. Do you know what? I was thinking when you said that you picked product discovery because it was an area where you thought, I need to know more about this. It's a bit of a weakness. And now it's a superpower. I was thinking, I'd be spoiled for choice on the areas where I don't feel comfortable. So <laughs> it would have been hard for me to narrow down. Um, what was Were there any other avenues that you thought, oh, I could do this rather than product discovery? Or was it, was it always set on that direction? I wouldn't uh, say that um, I had such a like deliberate intention to to go one way or another. It has clarified kind of over time, right? So I just said, hey, I think I want to try this independent thing. This was more focused on my personal kind of ambitions to have a direct correlations between like my effort and my outcomes that I can deliver and the, the kind of the recognition I get as well as the monetary reward I get. Meaning that I felt that in a certain roles, you're not really rewarded for doing a good job. You're rewarded for doing like a decent job. And I wanted to have that correlation, like feel, and I wanted to feel that in my life. So I'm motivated to, to, to give my absolute best. And I'm able to do that with clients. I tell them like, yeah, I try to charge like decent rates, but I'm going to give my absolute best. So that's like on the, on the kind of why there was not a, such a plan of like, this is my positioning and I'm going to do exactly that. That has morphed over, over time. And a year and a half is intense if you work on your, like, if you work by yourself, like this is, this is a, a long time. It doesn't sound like a long time. Um, but towards the, the topics. So it has evolved to be product discovery. And I think that was pretty, that was my gut feeling in the beginning. Um, the reason why I moved into that direction is I think it is a very first principle friendly domain. That sounds like overused. But what I mean is it's, it's really basic. Like it, I can explain it to people that are not in product management, that are not even in tech. And they understand why there's value there. So like PLG motions, for example, right? Even the word motion, like I don't even know what that means. Like, So it, it gets complicated. There's loops involved. And it's like, yeah, if it all works, it's great. But it's like a science. While product discovery is such a such a intuitive thing. And it's like, okay, we spend a lot of money on teams uh, and what they build. And most companies actually oftentimes build the wrong thing. So what practices can we introduce to avoid that or at least reduce the amount of errors that we make kind of in the effort and money and resources that we spend? And everybody understands that. And I like to work on something that like my mom understands. And have you found it's 
Because I think often the battle that people have with product discovery is that we know that we all know that like the whole point in products and the value that we can add is making sure that we solve the right problems and solve the right problems in the right way. But I think there's still a lot of organizations out there that um, aren't necessarily brought into that. They still want to see features. They still want to see delivery and they think product discovery potentially moves too slow, et cetera, et cetera. So have you found that half of your battle working in this space is trying to convince people why product discovery is a good idea? Or do you think that's something that people just know now? No, especially not in Europe. Um, from what I hear is uh, that that in the US, by th at this point, we are pretty far along. Um, no, I don't spend most of my time convincing people. I also think, well, I go back and forth. But obviously, if you're in a company that does not have this understanding, that kind of user centricity, product discovery, I think you can replace like a lot of those things, um, outcome uh, driven, driven kind of development, right? Um, if that is not in the DNA of the company and there is no high level buy-in, you're going to have a tough time. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but you should take care of your mental health while doing so. Um, I myself kind of did a, an amazing move for my own sanity, and that is to remove myself from the battle of trying to change organizations that do not want to change. Instead, what I'm saying is, hey, here I am. Like, I really like this change thing if you want to change it or if you want to get a little bit better at it. And sometimes I'm just a person that brings an outside perspective. Um, and then I, I kind of put myself on the market and I'm, I'm attracting people that are actually interested in this stuff. So this is the... It's a little bit of an unfair advantage uh, towards all the people that that work uh, that work in a in a company for a longer time. Uh, is that I I don't need to fight those battles. Uh, obviously, I try to educate if I can with the little experience I have by now um, to maybe like move somebody over. And like my my bigger vision mission OKR that I wrote down is like, okay, can I help a thousand companies do like weekly product discovery cycles? Because I really think this is where the magic happens. If you get to that kind of frequency and it doesn't need to be user interviews. It doesn't need to be like, it doesn't really matter. I don't think it needs to be Teresa Torres either. Um, but, but something uh, in that frequency. So there might be education involved in that. I might need to do more education and I might need to work with, with 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 C level in the future of like trying to get them there, but right now I'm just focused on the people that are curious about it, and and that's a wonderful place to be. Well, I uh, I'm definitely a person that's curious about it, and this is speaking to where I'm at right now. So I've recently joined um, the BBC, and BBC are definitely an organisation that um, invests in research and wants to wants to do discovery. Um, but the area of the BBC I've joined um, is there's a new product function just being set up. And mm. I've just been in conversations today, in fact, about how can we start having more regular contact with uh, our users. I work on an internal uh, facing team. So we we're a we, we serve capability teams, basically. And we've been discussing how can we start speaking to our users more uh, the way the BBC is kind of structured is there's there's a there's a research resource 
mm-hmm. but they're not embedded into the team. You go to them and say, oh, could you research this? They research it and they come back with like, here's your report. And like, we've seen some of that stuff and it's absolutely amazing. But as a team, we want to get to a place where it's like, well, what can we do? Like boots on the ground ourselves to take a bit rough and ready to make sure that we're speaking to people. So yeah, any any advice in that space? Yeah, I, I, I get into a, into a rough some feathers sometimes when talking with UX researchers because they assume that I speak against the role of centralized research. And maybe just as a quick disclaimer, I absolutely do not. I've seen those kind of reports, maybe not the same, but similar in quality, and they are amazing. Um, the cadence of which you are usually able to change what you're trying to figure out as well as how fast you get feedback is just too slow for a lot of daily work. Um, so I would say like a core satellite kind of approach of like, we do have centralized research for bigger topics, for riskier assumptions, for more strategic topics, makes absolute sense if the organization is willing to afford it, which they absolutely should. And I think that's a great point. Towards trying to talk to users, we have touch points, get data, whatever you you kind of looking for for the team um, in a in a corporate setting there's many challenges and we could go through like the specifics of your situation because they might be representative for a lot of people and um, one thing oftentimes is that it just lacks the, the the infrastructure to actually get access to the user right so you might not even have the right to talk to the user and uh, you might not even have the right to just play a survey out to them while they're using your product so then you have basically a non-starter, right? And so there is organizational hurdles like that, which I want to acknowledge. And if you have them, it's tough. Now let's assume there's a willingness to get you there. Then what I love to focus on is just to get to that first, um, to that first user interview and then try to build consistency. Just like, I mean, the sports analogy works for me. Um, Habit forming is is obviously what Teresa Torres talks about, um, but it, but it's true. It's uh, a meditation, right? Like you do two minutes. It's ridiculous, but it's better than doing nothing and you build a habit. So the less complicated you can keep, the more likely you will not fall off the train, like off your streak, basically, of I'm going to try to talk to one user per week. And then you can get more sophisticated after that. And I'm happy to talk about the more sophisticated stuff, but the reality is, uh, that it doesn't apply to most product teams. And how would you say, do you think it matters if people don't feel like they have that skill set? Or is it just the importance of going out and having the conversations in the first place, even if it's asking leading questions, for example? Yeah, that is a very good question because I am I'm sometimes thinking, how many hard skills are there really for product managers, Right. I started in computer science and I really knew how good I was <laughs> because I knew that next to me was sitting Ivan and on the other side was sitting David and they were both so much better at coding than me. And, and I was like watching their pull requests pour in and I just felt uh, I objectively know I'm worse than them. And in product, like what skills are you supposed to have? And then we make up these functions and we make up these roles, which to be honest, like 10 years ago, or I don't know, I get my times wrong, maybe 15 years ago, 
who knew what a product manager versus a UX researcher versus a PO versus a really is, right? And a user experience designer or like, where's the difference there? So I think we kind of make up these roles to be very distinct with very hard skills. And that is partially absolutely true. But I mean, I learned in psychology not to ask leading questions. It's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not a trade secret of the UX researcher. Um, and obviously as a PM, uh, if we're talking to PMs now, you might have to learn that. But I don't think there is like two year master's degree you need to take in order to learn the basics to get you rolling. And what I like to look at is startups. Startups have not a great success rate. And if they succeed, they kind of made it through evolution. And founders definitely do not have the skills to not ask leading questions. They definitely didn't go through a seminar to become UX researchers prior. They didn't get a certification as a PO, right? So if startups can do it, then I think you don't need to overcomplicate it in a more corporate environment. Cool. So the main advice is to basically just get started. Absolutely. We can absolutely call it a day here. That is the advice. <laughs> I think as well, um, just from my own experience. So I started off in product in the UK civil service and they have uh, professions. So there's, there's user researchers and they will go out and do the research, but um they they want the product people to be heavily involved and sometimes they can get frustrated with some product managers or some teams that aren't that interested in the research but when I started in product I remember reading um, Inspired and in that he talks about um, making sure that you're at every user research interview that you can be and if you're not you're not doing your job and that really resonated with me so when uh, user research was coming up I was like I'm, I'm going to go to everything so I wasn't the one doing the research but I was at as many of the sessions as I could and what I found by doing that was any understanding I thought I had would be multiplied by 10 just by being in the room and having the opportunity to ask a few questions at the end and that um, I just thought not being in those interviews just hamstrings yourself so much I don't understand why as a product manager you wouldn't want to be close to that but then there was there was one day when um, we were doing some face-to-face -face interviews. Um, we were interviewing um, childminders at that point. And uh, they said, like, come along. And because there was, like, three uh, DFE people and a room full of 20 childminders, I was no longer a product manager and they were user researchers. We were just people trying to interview as many people as possible. So I really take your point. I... I wasn't really trained with any user research skills, but just going off intuition and a bit of common sense and listening to a lot of them, um, I was able to elicit stuff. And I think I found actually being the person asking the questions rather than just an observer, I was so much better at getting to the getting the information that I needed and making that connection and building that empathy and realizing, oh, this is actually what we need to do. We're going down the wrong path with this. So I completely agree. Like. I suppose it is controversial, as you've said, because there's a whole profession there and I'm not degrading that because I've learned so much and it's brilliant. But I also found like removing those degrees of separation between myself and the user benefited my practice, definitely. And 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 that thing that we talked about at the start with like, here's your report. That's great and there's loads to learn from it, but there might be loads of stuff that I've missed by just not being there firsthand. Yeah, I think it, like, it's so common as well that 
UX researchers turn around and they say, well, five out of six people said this and people start trying to quantify this research and try to prove a point versus being in the room and having these conversations and really knowing who that user is and what it is they want to achieve. It's something that everyone can gain value from. So it definitely resonates. Yeah, and, and maybe just towards the the controversial part, we have time for some nuance here, right? So um, the pendulum might have just swung a little bit too far towards specialization in some places. That's that's basically what I'm saying. There's tons to learn from specialization, right? If you're a product manager who just focuses on APIs, you will be better at building API products than a product manager who has jumped from B2C to B2B to internal products, etc. That is absolutely clear. The question I have towards perfectionists is just, okay, well, when do you get started, right? I mean, obviously there is a profession attached to, for example, professional user research, and then there is literally a job to lose if somebody says that's not so special. But the same is true for product managers, right? And and uh, at front-end developers for that matter, right? Where we say, ah, oh, yeah, you can basically replace that now with ChatGPT, whatever, right? And and with product managers, well, do you have the hurrah, like the 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 holy uh, s moment with the with the um, with the Airbnb story this week, right? And and like people are freaking out about whether or not product management is that there, and 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 so I think we just have to all live with the fact that our roles are very dynamic and are going to change over the next ten and twenty years, and that yes, specialization will happen, and maybe we have user researchers that are particularly just focused on quantitative research and. And it's not even a data analyst. It's a UX researcher that is just does quant. I don't know. Maybe that's going to happen. But on the other hand, we have to see that we're probably overswinging on specialization. Um, and then we don't have these T-shaped teams anymore, which are able to like readjust and actually fix the problem at hand, but rather say, this is my profession. Like I can only do this. And if you don't have a need for this right now, I just sit around. And and if 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 I'm overloaded, then I'm a bottleneck. And so I guess there's a balance there. Uh, which is not very interesting, but that's, I guess, the nuance that I see. No, but I think, it is. Go on, Michael. I was going to say, no, it is interesting, definitely. Um, I was going to ask, going back to what you said before about like just getting started then. So imagine there's a situation where you're working with a client, uh, there isn't those blocks that means they can't speak to the user, and they say, right, we're going to start interviewing. What's the next step? Where do you try and guide them to next? Are there things other than interviews? Are there certain techniques? Like, what are you telling people in those first couple of weeks of starting this out? Yeah, I mean, what I would love to say, and I, I I've written a bit about this today because I just came off like a multi-day water fast, so like my mind was very clear, <laughs> um, and I was I was thinking about how much how little time product teams spend on the quality of their thought, which is in the end, like basically all we have, we try to rely on data, but you know, it's not always there. Um, that is what I would love to say. I would say go for walks, you know, take time, have deep work sessions, etc. But I know that's quite unrealistic in a day of like Slack notifications every 22 seconds. So pragmatically, what, what, I, what I do say is, yeah, just, I mean, focus on the interview first, because exactly like like you said, Michael, the empathy is is the thing that gets the emotions involved. And if the emotions are involved, then you're more likely to continue uh, and you're more likely to kind of feel the thing. And obviously that is not 
quantifiable and that is not hard data, but it, it is what gets you going. So I would say start with that. And then actually what I do next is I say, are you B2B or B2C? Um, if you're B2B, then one very, very major point not to forget is to involve all the functions that might be pissed off at you if you talk to them to talk to their users, right? Often sales owns the customer, uh, customer success teams, whatever the role might be. And that is just a major um, faux pas that you could do where you where you kind of sabotage your future product discovery processes. So that's actually the first very internal boring thing I say is, is just make sure if it's B2B that all the stakeholders are updated, that you update the CRM. And yes, that sounds boring, but it helps. Yeah, politics exists everywhere. Absolutely. And if it's B2C or in general after that, maybe, uh, just to add a bit more, um, I think usually teams are challenged with just talking to one user a week. Um, that's, I think, the reality. Uh, because you need to have kind of systems built up to make this sustainable. So it is not that much effort. Um, actually, I'm like figuring out like some automations around this right now of how we can set this up um, and how I can set it up with clients like, using Zapier and stuff like this to connect some things. Uh, I've seen some teams out there do some cool stuff, but there is organizational admin work that needs to be done, which usually gets deprioritized over time as a product manager, for example, has a lot to do. And a UX researcher is not present and a UX designer might not be willing and a team lead tech might not be willing. So where do you have the users that you wanna talk to? Uh, do you have a pool of users? Do you have a list? Do you have a short list? Do you have segmentation data on that list to say, what kind of usage pattern do these users have? That's all work, right? Then you have to reach out to them. Then they don't respond. Then you have to schedule a call. Then they say they don't have time or they want to call you on your mobile, right? Or it's time zone issues. Uh, language barriers. Actually, a lot of European product teams have language barriers with a lot of their users. Um, so do you get the right person to do the call? And then you need to do an interview guide and then you need to take notes and then you need to condense these notes into insights and then you need to share them. At least share the snippets so it's transparent towards your team and ideally also leadership that you're doing this so you're like a discovery champion that's what i try to get product teams to be it's like you're the discovery champions in this company and you get visibility for that so these are all kind of the steps that just happen around just talking to one user a week and and i think if you feel comfortable with that then usually the other stuff seems pretty easy because if you have the list of users that you want to talk to uh, it's not that hard to maybe expand that list to get a users, the list of users with segmentation that you would like to send a survey to. Um, actually, that's I think that's the hardest part. All these kind of admin-y things, uh, the tactical kind of setup stuff around uh, the CRM updates, right? Like who updates the CRM when? We talk to this user, they really complained, and I think they are churn risk. Like who puts that in the CRM? Who lets the who lets the customer success manager know? So those are usually the very unsexy, nitty-gritty things that I try to set up with teams because the likelihood of success or continuation of that pattern then is just higher. Yeah, because they are like they're the barriers to entry when everyone's got a million things to do, and we all do as product people. We've all got stacked calendars. So if you're then taking on a mammoth task like that as well, how likely are you to complete it versus the ease of going? Those things are already established. I can go speak to one user a week. So. Yeah, you you need people to really see the value, have the systems in place and want to do that. So it's something that's important to get. But if teams don't already have that, like you say, you're probably in a place where you go, okay, this isn't a place where I can really help. 
and I think that's where I try to provide value. So obviously, this is a this is a again like kind of a, a pen, well, or, it, or it's a paradox in a sense that I say, oh, it's very easy. Just talk to one user, or like I'm not the person saying this, right? Like real thought leaders in the space are saying this, right? So I'm just repeating that because I also believe it, um, and I've come to it like through my own uh, experience. But but obviously that is not simple because what I just mentioned is that there might be a lot of points that you have to actually tackle. And so towards that point about specialization, I do think there is benefit in some people specializing in just understanding what steps are needed to set this up, which is what I'm trying to do with discovery. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't work on something else or that people who have never worked with continuous discovery practices cannot start. Um, it's just that it, it seems easy on the surface, like going running, Okay, you just need to put your shoes on. But like the reality is you might, it might be beneficial for you to set up systems so it's easier to stick with it. So you might have a reminder on your phone. You might have your shoes in front of your door. You might have a running buddy if it's raining. I don't know. Like these are not absolutely essential. You could talk to a user just like that. Mm -hmm. But if you want to do it regularly, these systems help if they're in place. And, and, and for those systems, it helps to have expertise uh, or, or just try have time and space in the head, like to try these things out, and that is usually where I see the biggest hurdle is that product teams just don't have time for this. Just as you mentioned, I really enjoy that principle of um, yeah, okay, great. You want to speak to one user a week? That's very noble, but you need to actually think about the practicalities of what that looks like and making it easy. As you were speaking, then at I read uh, Atomic Habits not that long ago, and he speaks about that. Like, if you want to go for a run, lay out your stuff the night before, like make it easier to make that choice than, than not. So I, I get what you're saying there. A, a question I had is like, let's imagine in this scenario, uh, this imaginary client of yours, they've, they've thought like, right, we want to do this. We're going to interview one person a week. We're going to set up a survey. They've sorted out all the practicalities and it's happening. This information's coming in and they're getting good stuff. What do you advise them to then do with the stuff that they're finding? Or do you more advise like how to start getting that information and then leave it to them? Like, where do you sit on that? Yeah, I mean, data or information like without adequate interpretation is kind of worthless. So that is a very logical next step. And I would definitely always try to, to help there as much as I can. I think usually the problem here lies before the research happens. And I hate to say this because, or the discovery happens. I hate to say this because it makes it sound even more complicated, the whole thing. And I want to make it sound easy. But the problem oftentimes is that product teams don't even know what they're trying to find out. And that goes back to like my water fast uh, re reflection on like, how much do you spend on like the quality of your thinking is the times that, I've been in different PM roles. I've worked with different teams, B2C, B2B, mobile, small, big, managed two teams, managed three teams, managed one team where people were quitting. And so it was a very small team, like all the shapes and sizes um, that I've seen, the product manager in particular, uh, but the product team as a whole has always been very, very busy with busy work. And so actually taking the time to think about critical assumptions, which is what you're trying to test, is the hard work. And I've talked to 40 product managers this year about their experiences with product discovery. 
and without it's all love right but without um yeah without being mean i think that the main issue that they're facing is that they're not really sure what they're trying to figure out and that that requires a lot of thinking not just data and that's that's very hard if you're interrupted with meetings and slack notifications all the time even if you're not interrupted by that that's hard and so critical assumptions are what you're trying to test with experiments right and it might be in a user interview showing a figma sketch it might be a discovery interview because you're just trying to understand what is the opportunity about if we like take the opportunity solution tree as a mental model and then then you don't want to find out the whole solution. You want to find out just the thing that tests your critical assumption. So you need to understand, like, you have a solution, you have an opportunity, and then in the experiment, you're just trying to validate or probe that, that critical assumption. And getting to the critical assumption, like, what's the riskiest thing here that we are assuming, that is, like, it hurts to think about these things because it's hard, like, it's hard brain work, and, and you can't really outsource it. And you also can't data it. Like you can't get data to tell you that. Um, and so I would say usually the issue, that's a long-winded way of saying, usually the, the problem lies even before the discovery starts. No, and I think that's what's so funny. It was like, you know, when you talk through the whole product process, and I find this every time I speak to clients and people that work in product, is it's so nuanced. There's so many areas. And it's like even the bits you spoke about there in terms of like, having your outcomes defined, knowing what opportunity you're trying to chase, using the opportunity solution tree, like then being able to work out what your assumptions are in that space, rank those assumptions, work out which ones are the riskiest and then go out and validate them. You say these things and it seems so overwhelming if people are starting from zero. It's like, well, I need to do all of these things. It's going to take so much time. And I think in some ways that's true. Like that's the optimum product state, but we all know that there's not many people that operate in that space that cover all of those things. And there are not shortcuts. Like I don't always think that's the right thing to advocate for, but there are ways that you can start trying to do something. I think this is why the speech to one user a week is great because you still start to understand that and understand assumptions and understand what opportunities might exist, even if you haven't done all of that. So sometimes it is just picking a starting point and then having that long-term vision and starting to fill these gaps in the interim. So it's all valid. It's just finding that balance between it being overwhelming and it being easy. Yeah, but absolutely. And that's why it's it's hard and simple at the same time. And that's just to get back to the sports analogy, you will not learn how to train correctly by doing like five years of studies of PE, whatever, right? Like, um, you might you might learn more by going out like 20 minutes runs every day, right? So you might need both at, at times, but you kind of have to keep that that balance going of like I have practical experience, I have theoretical experience. I, again here, again here, again here. And and so it's easy and hard at the same time. Um, and I just think about it, I, I recently heard this and I found it pretty pretty great. Um it's People are saying this is very hard. No, this is very discovery is hard. Delivery is hard. Being a product manager with a lot of stakeholders is hard. The politics is hard. And then, and then I think like tech is hard. Like the the whole the whole shebang is hard, <laughs> right? And and then the 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 point was well, what's the price? And the price is so big in these tech companies. Obviously, you as an individual contributor, you might not see much of that price. 
right? And that's a problem, I think, in the industry. Uh, it's hard to motivate PMs to work as hard as they do. Um, if you if you say here's a fixed salary and 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 I don't know, I don't I don't know what the solution is. But what I'm saying is the price is really big, so the problem must be hard. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. And so that's just one thing that I found pretty helpful to think about. Yeah, obviously it's hard. It's the the most successful, most profitable, most fast growing businesses in the world are all tech companies. And because the price is so high, like the, the practice has to be hard. Yeah, you've got to learn how to do it well. Um, oh, anything else you wanted to touch on that, that subject, Michael? Because if not, I'll move on to another question. Yeah, move on. I think there's some great stuff there. Yeah, I know you mentioned earlier, Nico, about the fact that you thought we could talk about some more sophisticated stuff. So I'll just ask one question in that space, um, mostly around when you've worked with organizations and from your own experience, what would you say the best product discovery looks like? We can go to the other extreme, not just getting started, but the optimum end goal. So I don't know if I've yet seen it. Um, I I can give you a personal experience. Um, so we've been working on on a product ourselves, like three friends, right? And we're all in the tech space, and it's like perfect setup. One UX researcher, one product management person like me, and uh, a super talented dev. So we, of course, started with. Uh, talking to one user a week, discovery calls about our problem. Then we mapped out an opportunity solution tree. Then we started to build the first experiment. We did a landing page at some point to figure out whether or not the thing we were doing was resonating. We got a waitlist going. We contacted those waitlist people if they would like to talk to us. We did more discovery calls. We then started to build so the first MVP. You kind of get the picture. The I'm not saying that this is perfect, but this is the closest to implementing everything I wanted ever because I have full control over it and there's no organizational overhang. So um, what I can say what's magic about it is that um, you drop everything you need, like T-shaped, I think is the thing. We have different expertises in the team with three people. It's a very small team. There's no roadmap. We drop everything to fix the next cycle point. That's not a thing it's not a point it's a cycle section like I see, I see the illustration in front of me so if we have a delivery cycle and a discovery cycle and and kind of that needs to work in whatever you want to illustrate it at as an infinite eight or as two cycles or diamonds like i don't really care but uh, the fact is that sometimes the problem is that we don't really know if that critical assumption is validated or we don't really know if this will provide value um, and sometimes we just need to code or we just need to execute. And the whole team, which is three people, is allowed to shift all their efforts into the highest, into the most critical thing right now. And if that is discovery, we're all doing user interviews. We're all doing Figma prototypes. We're all thinking about assumptions. And that is including the tech lead, right? And and and, and it's including all functions. It's truly cross-functional. And that is what I would dream to replicate with clients. And the reason why I also wanted to try this out was obviously I would love to build a product that actually solves a user problem. But also I just wanted to try, how would I do it if I could start from scratch? 
And that is, I would say, the magic. And that's what I would say is pretty sophisticated, is that you have people that all understand the concepts, because that's often something in organizations that's hard to get tech people, for example, to be even interested in this, right? Everybody is behind that. And then everybody has a mental model of where are we in that double diamond, eight, triple diamond thing? And where do we need to focus on? And we literally, we don't have sprints, like Monday morning, where are we blocked? Cool. Everybody goes on that. And that is probably what I would say sophistication looks like. It's very simple and in simplicity less sophistication. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And it's something that um, is kind of happening in, in my team right now in the sense that um, we we know from, from some research that we've had done by that central resource that teams are struggling when onboarding onto our platform we're not struggling but they're saying like there's some room for improvement here so uh, we're gonna look at doing some more research in this space but one of the teams actually asking like oh you know I'm, I'm a developer so can I be involved in that and I was like yeah 100% like I, I want everyone as many people as possible to be involved in it because that thing about empathy what we were saying before it's not like because we're product managers we just see things that other people don't see and we're going to be there and it's going to be like Great ideas can come from anywhere across the team. And I completely agree with you whether I'll be allowed to do this or not. I don't know. But I think like, as you said, in an ideal world, everyone would just stop what they're doing. We're going to spend the next X number of weeks as a team all doing the research, all then coming up with solutions and then testing it again. Whether that'll happen in theory, you know, everyone's got things they need to do. But I agree with you. That That seems like perfection to me. Yeah, and I think it's funny because it's like the point that you made, Nico, and the point you're making now, Michael, is like the blocker isn't that you don't have the skills. It's not that you don't know that you should do these things or you want to do these things in the team. It's that external pressure. It's the, well, we've got these other things that we need to deliver and we can't take that much time on discovery and we want to see results by X date. Whereas you've obviously got this world at the moment, Nico, where, yes, you want to prioritize these things and work through them quickly, but it's not like you need to, in eight weeks' time, have the answers. And I think that's often where these things are more difficult in an organization, which doesn't mean that you can't try and get to that perfect point and try and do things in this right way to get started, but you just have to work within the challenges that you have. Yeah, and and I think just towards, because I did struggle with that while being employed at a bigger company at times, depends really on which team you're in, what leadership is there, et cetera. Just a word on empathy towards fellow product teams. You are not responsible solely for the transformation bottom up or however you want to call it of your organization. And so if there is a misunderstanding of what user value means, for example, that user empathy or regular touch points with users to actually get more structured qualitative data um, if there is no real buy-in for that leading to business results like if that bridge is not understood in leadership um, and um, across the organization through the different functions like for example tech then it, it is going to be an we would say an uphill battle and i think you should really think about which uphill battles you want to fight it's just that the friction in organizations is naturally very high. The bigger they are, the higher it is. That's just like a systems theory thing. And 
I like applaud everybody who tries and you should like, but just, I said it before, but just like make sure you don't burn yourself out on it um, because there is limits to what's possible. There is limits to your ability to shape the organization and live to fight another day to keep with the violent analogies um, because at some point you might be in that leadership position and then you can do it better. No, I agree. And I think a good words of wisdom is pick your battles and work out ways you can do that in a way that keeps you sane. Um, and on this discovery that you've been doing yourself, do you think that it really has helped you to find answers quicker and make sure you are solving the problem and hopefully building something customers love? Like, are you starting to see the evidence that this is working for you? Absolutely. I think the uh, the absence of a paycheck that's one thing I've been thinking about too, is like the economic incentive is really helpful to understand if you're going in the right direction. Um, money should not always matter, but it is a helpful signal from the market. And we don't get a paycheck right now. We spend the time that we can between clients, et cetera, um, to, to, to work on this product and, 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 and we're self-funded uh, in the sense that we, we try to find um, a product market fit and, and, and see if users would be willing to pay for what we are thinking is valuable. Now, towards if, if this, this is getting clearer through discovery practice, I would say we wouldn't have anything. Well, we would have something if we didn't do discovery. We would have a bunch of features that we stuck together, just kind of gut feeling. We are solving, we're scratching our own itch. So one could fall into the camp of saying, we understand the problem pretty well. Let's go with a lot of assumptions. We don't need to validate uh, that much. Let's just build it first. The amount of things, I, I can give you a very practical example. So no surprise, the product will be related to, uh, well, we have like a first version out, but like the domain is still hidden, um, is, is, is about helping teams with product discovery. Okay, that's, <clears throat> that's not a surprise. And um, there is a... Um, a screen which is like, hey, here is a calendar view of your user interviews that are coming up, right? And for the next weeks. And if they're non-scheduled, we give you like a CTA, like, hey, maybe you should schedule one. Here's how to do it. Okay. Now, a user told me in an interview, hey, why would this be a calendar? Like you're showing me Monday, Monday through Friday. Like, okay, it doesn't make sense that you don't show me the weekday, like the weekends but I have maximum two user interviews a week. Like I don't, you don't need to use all this real estate to like give me a Google calendar view with one invite in it and usually zero, especially when I'm starting up. And this is just a very specific thing about information architecture and it's more a UX issue. But he said, well, it's just frustrating if this is empty. And also it's like not the representation that I'm looking for here. Like I don't need a week overview because I'm, I'm not juggling like 15 user interviews. So if you want to show me my upcoming user interviews, like show them to me differently. And I already, in this, I built it. I, I, I became a Vue uh, 3 like uh, front-end developer for weeks and I built the effing calendar, right? Because I, I mean, I did Figma prototypes before, but nobody like pointed it out and, after this guy said it, it was like so obvious, like obviously you don't want a calendar view for this. So we threw away the code. Well, actually I comment, commented it out, but I mean, we are going to delete it. And, and that is a perfect example, I think, of you think you know, and you don't, 
And not every user is going to tell you the perfect answer. And obviously, the person could have been wrong. It could be that the calendar view is the right thing. But if you think about it afterwards and you challenge the assumptions that you had when building the thing, and then you realize, well, the person was just right. And that's yes, absolutely. It has a ton of benefits. And I think we would have made a thousand more mistakes so far. And we are only like a few months in. Can I ask you, you mentioned before about, you know, the absence of a paycheck and uh, being a freelancer and, and what comes with that. Now, I imagine once you go into being a freelancer, um, having a brand profile and people aware of the work that you're doing is really important. So therefore that chimes in with having a presence on LinkedIn. Uh, I see from you, I did a bit of LinkedIn stalking before uh, we recorded, as, as I mentioned. Um, and, you know, there's some really great stuff on your LinkedIn. And I saw you saying in one post about how, um, you know, you used to have a feeling about being uncomfortable on LinkedIn. And I really, that really resonated with me. Like I've got this thing, I don't know if it's like from being British and this thing about being British is we don't talk about ourselves. That's not what we do. Um, so I I went through a period of like, every time I put something on LinkedIn, I just got the ick. I was just like, oh no. And then if anyone in my work says, oh, I saw your LinkedIn post, I'm like, please don't talk about it. That's for strangers on the internet, not, not for public consumption of people I actually know. But I personally find I get a lot of benefit from speaking to people on LinkedIn. For example, I wouldn't have known Evie. I wouldn't have started this podcast if we hadn't have had it. I've learned so much. Uh, there's been like loads of like give and, give and take from people who are essentially strangers on the internet. Um, could you talk about your journey into posting on LinkedIn and the benefits you've seen and things you've had to overcome? Absolutely. I, I love to talk about it all day because I would say that it's not a British phenomenon. I, I think it's a, okay, that's maybe unfair to my friends from the US to generalize, but it's a non-US phenomenon, right? I mean, the the perfect storytellers, like as a culture, they practice storytelling all the time. And so a large majority or a large percentage of um, people that, that talk about themselves in the US do so very well. Um, so yeah, highly uncomfortable. Um, posting things on the internet, talking publicly. Um, I realized early on that my public speaking skills are like good in the sense that I get into a flow state and I don't feel too stressed. Um, but that's just, it's not, I guess, just luck or something. Um, and concerning my writing and like publishing, obviously I've also the language barrier to 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 jump over. Uh, so that's another thing that makes it even more scary. Um, so yeah, absolutely super scary. Uh, I think the fundamental question, and and I think what I realize, I don't want to say the older I get, but what I realize more and more is that there are some things where it just comes down to a decision. And, and that is, uh, in this case, is the decision of, okay, what do you want your impact to be, to, to use that very soft term? Um, you could also make it a hard thing, like how much do you want to earn a year? How much, um, how, how much network do you want to have to, if you want to look for a job later on, like you would know who to contact or how much do you really want to go freelance, independent, consultant? Um, so in the end, it's, it's about a choice um, and having the ability to visualize a bit 
um, about what the what the result of this could be down the road. And this is very much a compounding game in the sense that you do this every day. There's not a lot of feedback. You do it the next day as well. There's no feedback. Um, and to this day, I've seen, you know, you can compare yourself and people like grow faster in audience or people make, uh, you know, get more clients than you or anything like that. And then you can, you can put yourself down on that as well. Or you make mistakes, you publish typos, like I publish typos all the time. So it's very easy to beat yourself up on it. And I think that in the end, the fundamental insight that I had for myself at some point was what do I want for my future? And the price, and I'm not the first one to say it, the price of putting myself out there is totally worth uh, what I'm looking for, like what I'm trying to build and the impact I'm trying to have. And so I'm kind of embracing the cringiness of it all and saying, well, like that's why I think this goal of helping a thousand companies talk to you, like do product discovery weekly is a good one because that quantifies like the impact I'm trying to have and say, okay, if I achieve that, but I have like friends of me thinking that I'm weird, some of them, that's okay for me, right? And I totally understand if that is not okay for you. But at some point after 30 years of existence on this planet, I was like, I don't care. Yeah, I did care. And what I decided to do was block all my friends who were messaging me on WhatsApp every time I posted something going, what's this? Eventually just thought, I don't even want to speak this conversation ever again. So you can no longer see me and what I'm saying on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, and I don't think they've realized they've been blocked yet. Maybe they think that they just stopped me from doing it. But that was that was my method. I mean, there is a deeper point here, I think. Uh, at least for me and and that's like a bit personal but I there is a point and and this has obviously been talked about before but that you have to also think a bit about or I had to think a bit about who do I want to be five to ten years from now and what behavior like won't get me there and making fun of friends that kind of try to learn and try to share what they learn and try to get better and maybe try to get clients and all the stuff made me self-promotional. That is the kind of behavior that definitely will not get you anywhere in 10 years. Like that's my firm belief. So I'm not saying like delete the contacts in your WhatsApp. <laughs> that's your own business. But I'm saying that I think there it doesn't require like a ton of empathy to understand that you're trying to uh, learn, that you're trying to grow, uh, that you're trying to get better in your profession, that you may be also trying to get good opportunities in the future, but none of that is bad. So I think there is a deeper point here of like, well, how many of those people do you want around? I might unblock them, send them the clip of what you've just said and let them make their own choices about their own lives on the basis that of would That would be a, a boss move. Yeah, I'm like, you just need the German to say it how it is sometimes. We're too polite. <laughs> um, right, hopefully two quick fire questions to wrap us up. And Nico, you kind of transitioned to this near the end. You obviously mentioned that OKR of trying to get 1,000 um, people to speak to customers once a week. How do you think you're tracking against that? Are you actually actively monitoring it? Yeah, so I, I will publish more about it so people give me feedback if they actually started because obviously that would be great I haven't thought of I, I didn't think 
that that was the case, but I was talking to one PM and they were like, yeah, we're starting with this now and so on. And it's it's also because of your content. I was like, I have, I don't know, like 2000 people following me on LinkedIn. Like that's not um, the impact. Like I'm not, they haven't written a book. I'm also not planning to write one. So um, it's great to see that there's some impact there. I would love to track it more. I, I have my counter. At, I, I think I'm going to publish this like on my LinkedIn profile or something. Just always have a live update. I'm at like four out of a thousand, like officially right now. And um, but I'm going to celebrate each and each and every one of them. Um, obviously, the cool thing about this is, oh, I'm going to keep this short. The cool thing about this is, is that you um, you can now think about scalability, right? Like if that is the goal, then maybe working with one company at a time is going to take me 100 years. Like that's yeah, it's probably tough. So then I have to think about other ways. Um, and, and that's like an inspiring kind of thing. And that's what vision missions OKRs are supposed to do. Yeah, and it's still the compound effect, right? Like the first one to 10 are often the hardest and then it gets easier and easier from there. So I'm sure you're well on track. Um, and then one other last one, which might not be so quick either, but we want to make this a regular thing where we ask people about something you've either learned or been reading recently that has been a powerful message. So have you got one last little bit to share? Oh, I have to think a little bit. Um, I mean... The book I've been I'm I'm co-reading a few books, um, and I can recommend one is the Minimalist Entrepreneur, um, and I like particularly the chapters on getting your first hundred customers, and um, that's maybe not like the most philosophical take, but that's a very practical one, and I can maybe think about a philosophical one while I talk about this. So. The minimalist entrepreneur is all about the self-funding. I actually, to be honest, have a problem with the word bootstrapped in the sense that when did we make that? That used to be just normal businesses. Like, I don't know when 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 this became a special thing. It's just like, oh, you're not getting VC money. That's, that used to be normal. Um, that the goal is really to get those 100 paying customers and, and you don't even need to do marketing before that. You don't need to do growth motions before that. You don't need to... and. And that focus that you have as a self-funded solo, I think in, in his case, uh, entrepreneur, is I think very helpful for product teams of all sizes. It's it's I have this like one illustration I made of like, there's a growth loop and I have like the shit emoji next to it. And it, like, you shouldn't catapult that in. Like you should make sure that what you're putting into the growth loop actually has quality. Otherwise it's gonna be a shit show, right? So, um, and and, uh, that basically speaks towards that. It's, it's saying, hey, don't worry about distribution. Um, don't worry about growth loops. Don't worry about marketing. Don't worry about focus on a core, core, core group of people. That is your ICP. And you are trying to make them happy to the degree where they would, you know, all the typical things, recommend it to a friend, log in daily and so on. And you you will know what those metrics are. And I think even in products that are established, this is still a very valuable chapter. And I could just recommend that one chapter. So far, I can't recommend the whole book. Uh, but that's one thing that I'm reading. And that's one thing that I think a lot of product teams can take to heart. Amazing. I love these recommendations. I'm like, I'll add it to my reading list and we can put these things in the show notes for anyone. We do have these regular listeners that want to pick out a book. Um, cool. Anything else, Michael? Nothing from me amazing well it's been great to have you Nico you shared loads of useful insight on all things from product discovery to LinkedIn to good books that you're reading at the moment so it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me I would love to be back sometime 
I'm sure we can see how much you're tracking towards your 1,000 goals. <laughs> cool. Exactly. Thank you.